the baptism in the Holy Spirit. At Restoration Church, we believe that the baptism in the Holy Spirit is a separate experience from salvation. We believe that the Holy Spirit comes to live inside every single person that puts faith in Jesus because you can't put faith in Jesus without the Holy Spirit. But we also believe that there's a yielding. When we yield ourselves to what we call the baptism in the Holy Spirit that we think Scripture teaches on, that there's a... um, as you yield, that the Holy Spirit can use our lives in fuller ways. And when we yield, especially our tongues, that's a hard one, um, because the tongue is a restless evil, and if you can tame the tongue, you're perfect. And so we yield it to the Holy Spirit, allow Him to pray through us. And I know sometimes people get hung up on that. I Trust me, I grew up in an Assemblies of God church, and I attended it for 21 years and never had received the baptism in the Holy Spirit because I couldn't get past this. Um, and just one day just finally said, you know what, God, I'm going to believe. And then I still wrestled with tongues because I'm like, I only speak in tongues because I've heard other people do it. And so, but, you know, I've heard stories of people that speak in other languages. So God, if I could speak in a different language and someone could hear it, then that would confirm in, in my heart. And, you know, within a month's time, as I was just wrestling with that and praying with that, we had a, a person on our staff that spoke fluent Spanish. And uh, in our staff meeting one day, she just looked at me and she said, hey, I forgot to tell you, like on Sunday morning, you were at the, the pulpit and you were just praying and then you backed away from the mic, but I could hear you and you were praying in Spanish and this is what you were praying. And instantly my brain was like, yeah, right. Yeah, right. And she didn't know that I had had this conversation with the Lord. So here's the thing. If you're waiting for, you know, your brain to be convinced, <laughs> sometimes it doesn't happen. I mean, even Jesus said, Even if they see someone raised from the dead, if they don't believe the scripture, they still won't believe. So I just want to encourage you, keep seeking. Uh, I don't have all the answers, but if you want to visit about the baptism in the Holy Spirit, what it looks like, uh, how that functions in our lives, I'd love to do that. But I know we're all on a journey, and uh, so it's kind of hard sometimes to to have a conversation like that um, when we're all at just different points. But um, those are the kind of conversations we want to have. So today... If you remember last week, we talked about Kingdom Keys as a part of a series we've been on, um, just kind of walking out what it means to follow Jesus. We looked at the table manners of Jesus. We looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the unmerciful servant. Um, excuse me, I just had to move a cough drop to the other side of my mouth, and it made more noise than I thought. And so last week, we talked about the gospel of the kingdom, and Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And what that really means. And I gave you like seven keys. Um, We called them kingdom keys. And this week, uh, I titled the message House Keys. House Keys. And it's kind of along the same line. And I'm going to give you seven more. And some of them might overlap. But the reason I call it House Keys is because when we talk about the kingdom of God as like a whole entity, sometimes it's easier to talk about it in big generalities than to talk about it in like our one-on-one relationships with other people. And so I want to bring it home today. Kingdom Keys coming home. And so I want us to talk about um, how those things operate in our, maybe in our homes or in our close relationships with family members and friends or in our church. What does it look like for the kingdom to operate? Or if we're going to have this culture, if you've noticed that our church logo is a table, if we're going to have a culture where we give people a seat at the table and what that means. This does not mean that we value potlucks more than anything else. Um, You can have a meal with someone. It can be that. But this just means that we open our lives to people 
in a way that creates intimacy and hospitality and understanding and openness. And we are not compromising the truth of Scripture in any way, but we are trying to value people. And sometimes you do that best by just sitting and having a meal with someone and a conversation. And so it doesn't have to happen around a meal. It just is sometimes easier. And so that's why our church is a logo, and we're still trying to figure out what all that means. Uh, We just feel like that's the direction God's leading us, and that type of hospitality and intimacy is what He wants. And last week, we started with Matthew 16, 19, the famous verse where Jesus gives us the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He's uh, talking to His apostles and talking to them about binding and loosing or wrestling with the the things of the kingdom of God and releasing them on the earth. And we, we really talked about that last week, but one verse before this, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus makes this phrase in the midst of the conversation, I will build my church. That's the first time Jesus has said that. And that's the first time this word church has really been used in the scripture up to this point. And I don't know what you think when you hear the word church, but I, will, I, I think sometimes it's hard for us to understand what Jesus meant. Because for us, church is an organization. Church is a building. Church is a denomination. Church is a worship service. Church is a lot of different things. But for Jesus, this word, ecclesia, which is what is translated church, was none of those things. That does not mean organization is bad. Organization is very good. Buildings are important. Buildings are, are good things to, to have. They're, I don't know that they're necessary, but I mean, it's certainly better for us to be in this building together today than to you know, not be in the building together. Denominations aren't bad. Worship services aren't bad. But those aren't, by definition, what Jesus is expressing. The word ecclesia is actually a political word in the Greek and Roman empires. And ecclesia was a group of people that were called out. They were specified people that would come out into a public forum and they would discuss things. They would actually be like the court system. They would actually be the ones that held the elections. They would be the ones that would confer privileges on the people of the community. So in a way, not totally, but in a way they're like a city council or they're like a governing body, but they're like the total entity and they're the ecclesia. And so Jesus is saying, I am creating an ecclesia, a group of called out ones who are going to confer on people a kingdom, who are going to decide on things. Remember last week we talked about binding and loosing and wrestling and declaring truth. Like we are literally supposed to be the ecclesia of God for his kingdom. And that's a really different definition for church than what we do today. And so we have to be this group of people that do this. And I want to look at a couple of scriptures to kind of set the stage. And then we're going to look at the the seven keys. And I even put them on the screen because I realized last week I confused you when I just threw them out there. So I even put the keys on the screen to just try to bring a little more clarity to it. I apologize that I was a little unclear, but most of you seem to have gotten the gist. So there's an interesting passage of scripture in John 17. Jesus is praying right before he is about to be crucified. And he says this in verse 20. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their, through the disciples' message. So that's us. Because we are people who have believed in Jesus because of the disciples. I mean, ultimately. That all of them, 
not just all of them in Restoration Church, but everyone who believes in the message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Here's a a challenging question that we're going to start with today. Are you and I being a part of the answer to that prayer? Our Lord and Savior had one prayer for us. I would think maybe that should be our highest priority. And you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, Pastor. We've got to have evangelism as the highest priority. But it seems to say, if we would make this our highest priority, evangelism would happen better. Because the world would believe. So maybe the world isn't believing, not because, you know, the devil is on a war path, but because the church isn't trying to become one in the way that we've been called to. I mean, this is a hard one to wrestle with. Matthew, when Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew and in Luke, he said, pray this, that your kingdom will come and your will will be done. Not yours, but pray, you pray <laughs> for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. I don't know that, we're not just supposed to pray that. Okay, praying that aligns us in such a way that we actually are a part of having that happen. So we can actually pray for his kingdom to come and his will be done, and but live our lives in a way that actually hinders our prayer from being answered. And by praying it, it's supposed to bring us into alignment with him so that we release the kingdom. We are the ecclesia, releasing the kingdom, decisions, conferring on people, heal the sick, raise the dead, preach the gospel, good news to the poor, serve others. Like all of that is a part of our role as the called out ones of the kingdom. Peter also brings this up in, in 2 Peter chapter 3. He tells us that because of, you know, we're in these last days, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. I don't understand it all, but somehow you and I have a role to play in speeding the coming of the Lord. And maybe some of it has to do with this idea of oneness or unity in the body of Christ. And there are a lot of scripture passages we could go to about this, but we're going to do just two of them. One is in Philippians chapter 2. Paul is writing to this church here in Philippi, and he, in chapter 2, says these words. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind. Now, as we have this discussion about unity and being of the same mind, that does not mean that we all have to think the same. Because we will never all think the same. We will never all have the same exact thoughts and opinions about everything in in the world. You won't even have that with your spouse. Okay? And you don't have to. You don't have to agree on every issue in the world. To be of one mind or have unity. That's not what it means. And hopefully that will make sense as we go through it. But that's just there. Be of the same mind. Having the same love. Being in full accord or full unity and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That's a tricky thing. 
Because, you know, all of us, I don't know that any of us ever has totally pure motives, ever. I mean, we just, we do. We have selfish motives all a lot because we, we think we have the right opinion or we think we have the right thought. And so I don't know that we're, I mean, we're always trying to purify our motives, but I don't know that we'll ever fully get there. So we have to cut each other some slack, which he'll tell us here in a second. So don't do anything from selfish ambition or con- conceit, but in humility, regard or prefer others better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to talk about what Christ Jesus' mind was. He didn't think about being equal with God. He emptied himself. He became a human. And he emptied himself and he humbled himself even further to die on a cross in our place. Perfect, sinless Son of God died in our place. So, well, you, uh, you want me to apologize? I'm not the one who should apologize, Pastor Tom. They, they need to apologize to me. Thank goodness that's not how he treated us. And he didn't wait for us to apologize before he died for us. Sometimes we have to do the same thing. Amen, that's good preaching. Ephesians chapter 4 says the same thing. Ephesians chapter 4, well, much of the same thing. This is, this is how Paul says it to the church in Ephesus. I, therefore... The prisoner in the Lord. (laughs) The prisoner in the Lord. I mean, yeah, we are his slaves, even though we're his sons and daughters. Like this dual rule. Listen to what he says. I beg you. I plead with you. Lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The calling to which we've been called, I would say, is as ambassadors of Christ. Ecclesia, called out one, conferring the kingdom. That's our calling. And we do it with humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love and maintaining the unity of the spirit. Not the unity of the flesh or the unity of the human mind. The unity of the spirit. This is a work of the spirit that we have to maintain by our choices, by our words, by our actions. It is not uniformity. It does not mean that we will all agree. It does not mean that we should all have the same political ideas. It does not mean that we should all have the same views on vaccinations and masks. It does not mean any of that. We can be unified in the Spirit and be in conflict about ideas. Because guess what? You will never come to the place with any human being where you don't have conflict ever at all. Conflict is not bad. How we respond to conflict can be good or bad. What Jesus did say in Luke 17, 1, not on the screen, look it up later, it's impossible that offenses will not come. You're going to have the opportunity to be offended with someone. You're going to have problems and difficulties. If your goal in serving the Lord is to come to a place where you're in total, full agreement with every human being with no conflict and you have no problems, I don't know, that that's not the gospel. <laughs> It's just not going to happen. And so we just have to be careful how we live in this and how we respond to it. Because sometimes when we have conflict, we choose avoidance. Well, I don't want to rock the boat. I'm just going to 
just avoid it. I'm not going to talk about it. And can I tell you that that's a lie from the enemy? Because what happens when we try to avoid conflict is we we begin to distance ourselves from others. We begin to isolate ourselves from others. And then the relationship many times just severs totally. You can't avoid conflict. You just have to deal with it in a godly manner. And sometimes you have to wait for the emotion to come down so you can deal with it in a godly manner. Because the angry, volatile way, going to someone and being like, look at what you did, and you're this horrible person, and you should say you're sorry to me. That's really not how we deal with conflict either. And so learning how to walk in the unity of the Spirit is really important. And here's seven keys, I think, that are going to help us. If we're going to have a table culture, if we're going to be a kingdom people, an ecclesia, seven keys, not a complete list, just seven things that I see as I read these scriptures and others. So the first one, key number one, cultivate humility. This will take the rest of our lives. We are always going to be learning to cultivate more humility. Philippians 2 said it, be humble. Ephesians 4 said it, with all humility. 1 Peter 5.5 says this, all of you must clothe yourselves with humility. I wish there was a period there because that would be easier to take than what comes next. In your dealings with one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I mean, when we talk about humility before God, I mean, okay, I can humble myself before Him. I mean, who can't? He's trustworthy, He's faithful, He's loving, He's merciful. But you're telling me i got to put on more humility in my dealings with people. Why? Because people are like me. I mean, I know that when I look at some people, I think I'm better than them, but in reality, we're the same, the exact same. And it's easy for me to puff up and think that I'm better because I don't do that thing that they're doing or I don't have that mindset that they have. But in reality, as a human being, we all are the same before God. And the only thing that makes a difference is His mercy and grace in our lives. It's putting faith in Christ. And so we have got to learn how to put on humility, to prefer others over ourselves even. This idea of preference and being open to the idea that I could be wrong. Gasp. A few years ago, and by a few years ago I mean like 12, (laughs) the Assemblies of God changed our, our stand on creation. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know it until someone in our church pointed it out to me. Because back then, I just assumed that creation was, you know, very literal, however it happened in the Bible, whatever the Bible says is literal, it's true. Well, I found that some people don't think the Bible is absolutely literal in every place. So the creation story, and there's a lot of evidence for this, and I don't have time to go into it, but the creation story could be a figurative telling of how God created the world, not literal. And as I look at that, for me, It doesn't matter. I mean, it could be totally like that book says it happened, or it could be a figurative narrative telling of a story. The point is, he created it all, and he created it all good, and it was good until man sinned, period. So whether you take it as a a literal thing or a figurative thing, the truth is still the truth. I mean, Jesus told a lot of truth, but he told it in made-up stories called parables. They weren't true stories, but they were truth. You understand? So... That's the, the dichotomy. And the Assemblies of God changed our stance and we just said, you know, we're f- you're free to, to believe however you need to believe it as long as you believe truth. 
Well, someone didn't like that. They left our church over it because it's a slippery slope when you start saying the Bible's not true. Well, we didn't. We just opened it up to the fact that we could be wrong. You know, the mark of the beast. I, wow. This is this is today's topic, right? Mark of the beast. We're, hand, forehead, it's coming, baby. And we're all looking for this literal mark that's going to be put on our hand and our forehead. There are a lot of believers that actually think it's not a literal mark. That the mark of the forehead is a worldview. It's an ideology. You're going to embrace an ideology and that's the mark. Because in the book of Revelation, believers are also sealed with the mark. A literal mark or the mark of the kingdom of God. The ideology of the kingdom. So, mark on the head, ideology. Mark on the hand, how I live. Action. So some people think that it's figurative. Now, here's the thing. If you're looking for a literal mark and it's not literal, it's figurative, you run the risk of being deceived by it. Adolf Hitler got the Germans to stand with him against all kinds of crazy stuff. And they worshipped him, literally as an individual. He was the savior of Germany. He brought them out of a, uh, an economic recession. He boasted their pride in Germany again. Because after World War I, remember, Germany was hit with all kinds of problems and all kinds of sanctions. And he basically busted through all of those sanctions. And they, they worshipped him as like the savior of Germany. So then when he started giving them an ideology that most of us would look at and be like, what are people thinking? It was easy for them to buy into it because they'd already bought, bought into the ideology. So the German people didn't have a mark on their forehead or on their hands. They did wear something on their sleeves. But they bought into this antichrist spirit. Now, there could be a literal mark that comes in the last days. But press into the kingdom in humility and realize, I might be wrong about how I think this is all going to go down. And what I need to do is really press into the kingdom and make sure I'm not deceived by anything. I know the truth. I study the word. I'm in a Bible-believing church. I'm with a group of believers. I'm listening to people who maybe disagree with me. I'm growing in my understanding of the scripture. And I'm ready for whatever's coming. Because I don't know what's coming. And quite frankly, neither do you. The funny thing about our preferences can be we can elevate them to the place where we start to worship our preferences. That's where churches get into worshiping worship instead of worshiping the creator. I don't care what song is sung. I don't care what instruments are used. Worship can happen when we position our hearts towards him. But some of us worship styles and preferences and programs and methodologies and buildings and political ideologies. And God calls us to cultivate humility with one another so that we grow as a kingdom people. So that's number one. Number two. Number two, stop categorizing people. Stop categorizing people. We have to do this. We basically take Polaroid snapshots of people from a distance, and that's how we, we view them. We look at their actions. We look at maybe a situation where they treated us incorrectly, and we start to develop opinions, or we judge their motives, and we label them. And we all we have, we don't have the full story of their life. We don't know all of it, but we have Polaroids, literally. Okay, we don't have a movie, we have Polaroids. And from those Polaroids, we have developed a, a, a thought process of where people should be or who they are or what their motives are. And then that starts to skew everything they do. Then we start seeing them through the lens of our Polaroids and not through the lens of who they are. 
I mean, if I would ask you today, what are your thoughts on millennials? Oh, yeah, millennials. Mm-hmm. Or what about boomers? What are your thoughts on boomers? Mm, yeah, boomers. I mean, we all have these biases based on, like, snapshots we take of people. If I, what do you think of Republicans? Some of you would be like, mm-hmm. what do you think of Democrats? Mm-hmm. I mean, we Polaroids. And we try to put people into these snapshots. 2 Corinthians 5.16 says, We have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. No more Polaroids. I'm not going to label you based on this stuff. Even 1 Corinthians 13.5, love keeps no record of being wronged. So even when you wrong me, I'm not going to let those Polaroids be the definition of who you are. I'm not going to let you be identified by the Polaroids that I have collected in my mental scrapbook. I'm not going to categorize you. Because David was a man after God's own heart. And let's look at David's Polaroids, shall we? I mean, David didn't know enough to uh, put the cart on the shoulders of the priest, and he got Uzzah killed, Polaroid. And David took that census, and he got thousands of people killed, Polaroid. David and Bathsheba, Polaroid, Polaroid. David killed Uriah to cover up his sin with Bathsheba, Polaroid. David's son Amnon raped his half-sister Tamar, and David didn't do anything, Polaroid. Absalom hated Amnon and killed him. David didn't do anything, Polaroid. And yet it it would be so easy for us to categorize King David as, well, who does he think he is? And yet the scripture says he's a man after God's own heart. Be careful collecting your Polaroids of people and let people break out of the prison of their Polaroids. That's tweetable. Let people break out of the prison of their Polaroids. We hold things over people and we use sarcastic jabs. And the body of Christ isn't one because people can't be themselves. They have to live in fear of their past or how we view them. Number three goes right with it. Keep believing the best in others. Keep believing the best in others. Against all hope, keep believing the best in others. 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Love bears up under anything and everything that comes. It's ever ready to believe the best of every person. Its hopes are fadeless under all circumstances, and it endures everything without weakening. It doesn't mean if someone has abused you, you have to enter into a a trustful relationship with them again right away, throw all caution to the wind. But you have to believe that the best. You have to believe there's possibility for change. You can't ever give up believing the best in other people. 1 Peter 4.8, above all, maintain constant love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Paul says if you're going to be unified, you've got to make allowance for each other's faults. I love in our world today that we have these personality assessments that we take that help us understand people who think differently than us. Uh, I love them. I value them. I've taken them. um, But let's stop locking people into the prison of them. Okay, because we use sarcastic jabs to be like, oh, yeah, you're, you're like one of those people. You're like that type. You ought to be learning from that type because there's some weaknesses in your life that their strengths could help you with, but because you look down on them, you can't do it. You don't believe the best in them. You've labeled them. You've put them into the, and we've got to break out of that. 
How can I help other people succeed? How can I help them overcome wrong choices they've made? Instead of looking at their wrong choice and saying, well, their heart is totally evil or they're against me. I know they're against me. Everything they say is against me. Stop believing the world is against you. Stop believing that every person in your life is against you and start believing the best. Instead of taking the first thought that comes into your mind, oh, what did they mean by that? Well, I think they maybe meant to put me down. Give them the benefit of the doubt and think they meant something totally different because they're a totally different person than you. And so have a conversation and say this, hey, what did you mean by that? I don't know if I understood it. Wow, that was super easy. Instead of going on Facebook and saying, hey, if you heard this, what would you think about this? Oh, gotta, we have to believe the best in others. Number four, I, I got this phrase from... Um, Johnson Bowie. Johnson Bowie is the pastor of Victory Church in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, if you don't know anything about Dennis Rouse, the founding pastor of that church in Atlanta, Victory Church, um, amazing church. In the area of rec racial reconciliation, they are one of the leading ethnically diverse congregations in the nation in Atlanta. Um, over a hundred different nations represented in their church. Um, it's just crazy what they are doing for the kingdom and how to help people with this idea of reconcil reconciliation uh, racially. And so he uses this phrase a lot, talking about their kingdom culture. You have to take divorce off the table. That's number four. You have to take divorce off the table. We Cancel culture is not a new thing. Okay, We've been doing this for years. We, if we disagree, you know, I just, I'm leaving the church. I mean, some of you today are one offense away from, I'm out of here, I'm done. We have got to, the, is there ever a time to leave a church? Yes. Just not as much as we do. It's time for the body of Christ to take divorce off the table. And it, if you're here today and you've been divorced in marriage, this isn't a slam on you. Um, this is just a statement of fact that we, commitment is gone in our culture. The idea of working through our differences and trying to reconcile. If you in a marriage have ever taken off your wedding ring in an argument, stop it. Stop it. I mean, when we got married, we're committed. We're in this thing and we're going to disagree. But you don't have to worry that that disagreement is going to make me not be here tomorrow. You don't have to carry that. Okay, we may fight, but we're here. And the same thing is true in the body of Christ. Look what... A, Paul says in Ephesians 5, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 29, after all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are our members of his body. For this reason, a man, I didn't skip a verse, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. If you read that whole passage in Ephesians 5, Paul just overlaps marriage and the relationship of husband and wife and Christ and the church, and it's just all interconnected. That's where this idea that you take divorce off the table comes from in the body of Christ. Because there's this mindset today that, well, if they change their views on creation, we're out of here. That person didn't do something the way I wanted it done. We're out of here. They don't sing the songs I like. We're out of here. We're out of here. I'm just, I'm going to go somewhere else. But guess what? You're going to find the same stuff there too. Because you can't go where there's not problems to work through. So when we take divorce off the table, we say, how do I work on this? Not, should I leave? How do we work on this? 
How do we grow together? How do we commit to each other through this disagreement? We're committed to working it out and praying it out, and we're committed to the effort that's needed to make oneness happen. And it's not because I'm committed to you. And it's not because I'm committed to Restoration Church. It's because I'm committed to Jesus Christ. And doing the hard work of oneness is going to put Him on display for a world that is watching, and they will then be convinced that He came from God. Yeah, that's what it is. I'm not my own. I don't get to pick where I go. i got to run it through Him. Take divorce off the table. All right, number five. Are you still with me? All right, good. Live intentionally. We talked about this one last week, but again, live intentionally. We will naturally, as human beings, gravitate towards people that are most like us. So our greatest friendships are going to be those people that are like us, make us most comfortable. We have to be intentional about reaching out to people that are not like us, people that are it's awkward or uncomfortable to gravitate towards. If we are going to be a true kingdom culture, a table culture, that's what we're going to have to do. We will choose the path of least resistance for our lives. If we are going to be in the kingdom, I have got to start making some choices that I don't want to make, but the kingdom requires me to make. If every decision in my life makes me comfortable and happy, I'm not making all the right decisions. (laughs) That's just how I read the scripture. Because there are times that the path of least resistance is not the path he wants me to take. He wants me to take intentional choices in my life. Colossians 4, 5. Be wise in the ways that you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. If I just pack my schedule full and I just run through my day, day after day, I will not make the most of every opportunity. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, If you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing more than others? Don't even Gentiles do that? But you should be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, if I'm only interacting with the people that are like me, that I'm comfortable with, or you know that I haven't collected Polaroids on, well, I can't interact with that person, Pastor Tom. They, make, they wear a Black Lives Matter t-shirt, so I'm not going to wear a Polaroid. Or, well, they wear a Make America Great ch- hat, so I'm not gonna, I can't interact with them. Baloney. That's not true. If that's, I mean, what's going to divide us in the body of Christ? It shouldn't. I should reach out to people that think differently than me and say, "Hey, help me understand why you why you think that way." Just not here to defend my point of view. I just want to hear yours. Some of us would do well to listen to someone's viewpoint that's different than ours and really just listen without responding. Just listen. And then walk away and say, hey, thanks for sharing that. That's it. That would do us wonderful if we would do that. So number six, go first. (laughs) Go first. We're all sitting around waiting for someone else to go first. Go first. Seek to understand others before you need to be understood yourself. Go first. Because you have the power of the Holy Spirit, so you can go first. I can go first. We can go first. James 1.19, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Matthew 7.12, in everything you do, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus says, go first. What do you want that person to do for you? Do it for them. Go 
first. Serve first. Love first. Reconcile first. Listen first. Go the extra mile first. See it from their point of view first. Reconcile first. Be first. Be the first. Be first. However, let's not be the first to share our opinion. We all want to be first there. Remember our calling as Christ's ambassadors? This is a sidebar. I'd encourage you today to go through your your social media page and ask yourself the hard question, or better yet, ask someone else to look through it for you and say, is my social media page a welcome mat or a no trespassing sign? Is it a welcome mat or a no trespassing sign? Because if we are an ecclesia, ambassadors of Christ, saying, hey world, be reconciled to God, am I putting out a welcome mat for people to be reconciled to God or am I putting up a no trespassing sign and there's no chance I'm going to be able to reconcile people to God? Go first. Go first. Number seven. Bless and do not curse. Bless and do not curse. Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. In in the Hebrew culture, the blessing is super important. The blessing is about adding value to others. And so when Paul says, bless and do not curse, he's basically telling us every single person, even those who persecute you, go into a situation, go into a conversation, find a way to add value to them. Instead of seeing the 50 things they do wrong, What's the one thing that they're doing right that you can bless? And sometimes we need to pray and say, Holy Spirit, show me. Because I'm so locked into my Polaroids, I don't see anything good, but I know there's something there because you're at work in their lives. If I curse people who curse me, I empower the spirit of the age, the Antichrist spirit. That's what I've done. If I do nothing, good or bad, to those who curse me. I still think I empower the spirit of the age. I talked earlier about Amnon who raped Tamar and Absalom, the, Tamar's sister, hated Amnon, we're told in 1 Samuel, and he never said anything to him, either good nor bad. He hated him. It's not enough for us to be unintentional about just not cursing back. We have to go intentional and bless in return. Think about your family. Think about the people in our church. Think about your workplace. Think about people in our community. And how could you just tell them, hey, you add such value to our family because of this. Or you add value to our church because of this. You add value to our workplace. I mean, your coworkers, catch them doing right things and say, man, you, you add such value to our workplace because of this thing. Because here's the thing. We think if we criticize people, it's going to cause them to change. But blessing actually has more potential to lead them to change than cursing them. So find a way to bless them. Find a way to bless what God is doing in their life. Not phony. Don't make stuff up. Hey, you're great. Bless you in the name of the Lord. You're great. You need to do some more praying into that one. Because we need to get specific with each other and find ways to bless and not curse. It's a powerful motivator. So, Restoration Church, we want to be a kingdom community that puts God on display. Here it is again. Here's the list. Cultivating humility, 
refusing to categorize others, choosing to believe the best, taking divorce off the table, living intentionally, going first, adding value to others by blessing always. I think if we started making those things our goal, let's look at John 17, 21 again. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. If we go after this list with intentionality, we might actually get to that place of oneness where the world looks at us and says, how do you people go to church together? I mean, you're so different than each other. Well, let me tell you about the one who broke down every dividing wall, every single one. And his name is Jesus. And he doesn't just have the power to forgive my sins. He has the power to make me one with people that I would never be one with otherwise. And it's great. That's the church I want to be. And I think that's the church you want to be because you wouldn't be crazy enough to go here without it. And so that's why I put this list in front of us today. And there's two questions. I don't have them on the screen. There's only two questions as we look at that list today that we should ask as we close. One, what one thing do I need to stop doing? What one thing do I need to stop doing? Now, if you're like me, there's more than one. But let's just, let's just do one at a time, okay? Because, man, it's hard enough to do one thing at a time. What one thing do I need to stop doing? Maybe I need to stop isolating. Maybe I need to stop gossiping. Maybe I need to stop categorizing. Maybe I need to change my social media page. Maybe I need to, to become more open-minded. What do I need to stop doing? And then the second one, what do I need to start doing? What do I need to start doing? Maybe I need to invite someone for lunch or coffee. Maybe I need to find a way to practically serve another person. Maybe I need to get better at blessing my coworkers, my family members. Those people that we prayed for today, that the loved ones in your family that need, need Jesus, start blessing them. Start praying over them and find ways to bless them in the name of the Lord. Oh, man, you're going to release the kingdom over their lives. That coworker that drives you nuts, oh, lazy millennial, he never does anything. Find a way to bless him. I just promise you, for every Polaroid we've ever collected about people, there's a father who has the full video. And he doesn't think through our Polaroid lenses. And we need a shift. Now, we're not going to ignore conflict. We're going to deal with it. We're going to sometimes have to wrestle through some hard things together. But we're going we're gonna to get better at the effort needed for oneness. And so, Father, thank you. Thank you for bringing us into your ecclesia, your called out ones. Thank you for the privilege of being your ambassadors. God, thank you for this group of people that are in this room with me now watching online. God, thank you for the members of Restoration Church. God, we don't know what it means to be a kingdom culture, a table culture, 
Sometimes I feel like we're so far removed from what you've actually taught us. We don't know what's cultural and what's biblical. And God, there's just a mess around us. But no, we know that you're committed to us. You're committed to building your church. You're committed to being faithful even when we're unfaithful. And so, Holy Spirit, we're, we're fully aware that there's areas in our lives where our thinking needs to shift, where our behavior needs to shift. And so we're asking you today just for two things. What's that one thing that we need to stop doing? What's that one thing that we need to start doing? Just give us clarity on those two things today so that we can just take one more step in that journey of oneness together as a church body. Oneness with your your people throughout our community, throughout our nation, throughout the world. Your body. So Father, give us the grace, the mercy, the patience, the humility, the perseverance that we need to labor toward maintaining that unity of the Spirit that's in your heart for us. I ask that you'd speak plainly and speak clearly to each of us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You're always welcome. If you want to spend some time just sitting there um, and saying, hey, I'm not going to leave the Holy Spirit until you give me one, um, you're welcome to stay here as long as you need to until you get that one thing that he wants you to, to adjust today. And so when you're ready to be dismissed, um, we uh, go ahead and be dismissed. Don't forget to stop by the table for the information that's out there, the offering baskets as well. And then if you want to join us for House of Prayer, tonight at 5 o'clock downtown or online. God bless you as you go.